Hebrews uh, chapter 12, and um, we're going to finish up the series we started a few weeks ago uh, called Broken, and I, I said a couple of weeks ago that I was planning on kind of going in a little different direction than where I'd originally uh, intended to go at the end of this and talk about the idea of justice, uh, talk about fixing what's broken, but as I began to study that last week, I kind of decided that uh, I had a series instead of a message. And so that's what we're going to do, Lord willing, in the month of August. We're going to spend the month of August on Sunday mornings talking about the concept of justice and what the Bible teaches about it. It's such a big thing in our society now. But, you know, justice emanates from God. And, uh, you know, what we hear about it, some of it's true. I think some of it's not, and so we're going to explore in uh, you know, a way, I think, that relates to our culture what Scripture actually teaches about this uh, concept. And so I'm going to go back to where I originally was headed at the end of this series today. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And then on the 19th, we're going to do something that got postponed from April. It's something that we do every year. Uh, we take one service out of the year, and basically, instead of having a sermon, we have a panel, and we take live questions, or you can submit them in advance as well. And so uh, the panel this year is going to be me. Uh, Lori Arwood, who's our church counselor, and Dr. Ryan Stokes, who's a Bible professor at Carson Newman. So uh, if you have questions, uh, it's a good chance to, to, to share them. Also, if you have friends, and this is the kind of thing that's conducive to online, maybe people who wouldn't even come to church, but uh, that you can invite online, people who aren't Christians, people who are skeptics. I mean, we'll welcome, you know, basically any question. And so, um, you know, we would encourage you to invite people and encourage them to to share their, their questions. So I want to go ahead and uh, mention that uh, to you. And so uh, today I want to talk about just kind of the idea of broken or bailed out. And so, you know, what does that mean? What does that refer to? Well, uh, you know, a bailout can be a financial term. It can be maybe when the government uh, rescues a, a bank or something like that. Um, and all of us sometimes in life want to get bailed out. It would be nice, I guess, in a way, if any time we made a dumb financial decision that the, the government would jump in and bail us out. But life doesn't work that way in the private sector. And anytime there's going to be a bailout, there is a cost to that. I mean, you know, the government can't just give away money and it come from nowhere, right? Uh, you know, and even as we, with coronavirus and the stimulus earlier and talk of another one, uh, at some point, there's a price that's going to be paid. Uh, for that. But sometimes it is nice to get bailed out. I remember one time when I was a kid and we were on vacation. We went to the beach uh, with some friends and um, our friends had a couple of kids who were older than me, uh, a son and a daughter. But the son had brought a friend with him. So we were hanging out with him and we were doing something. I think we were uh, playing putt-putt. It may have been something different, but I think that's what it was. But, but I did something dumb, I made a bet with an older kid, and I, and, and, I, and I lost, and it was doubly dumb because I couldn't actually cover the bet. And uh, this is not, 
you know, a smart approach to life in any way, shape, or form. But fortunately, uh, and, and this was not with the family friend kid, this was with the friend of the friend kid that I didn't know who was older than me and a lot bigger than me. But fortunately, the family friend kid jumped in, saved my life, handled it for me, took care of what I couldn't pay, and he bailed me out, which I'm thankful for. And, you know, sometimes uh, God bails us out of things. I think that's part of what uh, grace does. But I also think that we can sometimes misunderstand this and try to misuse grace in our lives. I think a lot of times spiritually, the way that we live is we live just looking for a bailout. We, look, we live uh, thinking that, you know, we can kind of just do whatever we want to do, or if we make a bad decision, if we sin, if we don't live with wisdom, if we don't live with discipline, uh, fill in the blank, that God's just going to be there and he's going to bail us out. And listen, God is gracious. God is forgiving. But there are still consequences to our sin. There are still scars that come. And so this is the, the main idea of what I want to share with you today from this text. And I, and I want to pose it in the form of a question. And, and I would encourage us to wrestle with this question prayerfully. I, I think it's a question that we need to uh, deal with in our lives because I believe we are prone towards just looking for a bailout. And so this is the question. And it is, are we broken over our sin? Or are we just simply wanting God to bail us out of the consequences of our sin? And those are two very different things. And so in a way, it's kind of a two-part question. And so... The answer to the second part is yes. We want God to bail us out of the consequences of our sin if we're honest, right? Yes. Is, is that a true statement? Yes. I mean, is there anybody here that like, yeah, I mean, assuming, you know, there is a God, you believe in God, all these kind of things, but if, if, if God's real and he's willing to forgive you and just kind of bail you out of the consequences of your sin, you would sign up for that deal. But what we're going to see in Scripture today is that is not actually how it works. Because God is not just a God who's just like a genie in the sky, just, you know, waiting to deliver us from the consequence of every sin. God is a God who is looking for us to be broken over our sin. And so we're going to look at an example of this in Scripture today. We're going to look at a man by the name of Esau. And uh, it's really based on a story from the Old Testament uh, with you know, his, their father Isaac and, and uh, Esau and his brother Jacob. But in Romans 15, 4, the Bible talks about things that were written in the Old Testament were written as examples to us. And the story of Jacob and Esau that begins in Genesis 25 is picked up in Genesis 27 and then picked up again uh, later on is used in Romans chapter 9 as an example of God's sovereign electing grace. But in Hebrews 12, what we're going to look at today, it's used in ex as an example of a, uh, Esau is an example of a false believer. 
That's a theme through the book of Hebrews. You know, we're saved, made right with God only by the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And God saves us apart from our works. And so he keeps us saved. And so if we are genuinely saved, we believe the Bible teaches that we're always going to be saved. We're secure in Christ, that we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. But the key word there is if. And there are many people who have made a profession of faith in Christ, who don't really know Christ. And the New Testament, time and time again, warns us about that. The book of Hebrews does that. This passage does that. And so I think part of what we need to wrestle with today is are we a genuine believer? Not have we just prayed a prayer, joined a church or whatever, but do we genuinely have a life-changing relationship with Christ? And if we can say yes to that, then what is it? It's not if, but what is it in our lives that we need to actually truly be broken over and repent of? Because really the only way to overcome sin is to be broken over sin. And the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. So are we broken over our sin or do we want God to bail us out of our sin? Listen, I know this is a heavy topic on a holiday weekend, but it's an important topic. It's a life or death topic. It's an eternal life or death topic. And really, it's something that affects our day-to-day lives because if we're trying to live life to manage our sin and avoid the consequences of our sin, that's a path that leads to destruction. The only path that really leads to life and healing and freedom and, and, and joy and just the fullness of life that God wants us to have is living a life of brokenness, a life of surrender, a life of repentance. So let's read what scripture says here. Um, Let's read together, follow along in in your Bible or it's on the screen. Um, And we're going to start in Hebrews 12, 12. Like I said, it's a warning to give context. We're going to focus on verses 16 and and 17. And so uh, the writer of scripture says here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, uh, which is talking about sexual immorality, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, the word profane literally means it could be translated as godless. Now, before we read verse 17, let's go back Uh, to the Old Testament. Let's go back to Genesis 25 and actually read the historical account uh, of what happened here. And um, remember that Hebrews 12 is giving us kind of an interpretation, an explanation, uh, an application to us today of what actually happened. But Genesis 25, starting in verse 29, it says, now Jacob cooked a stew 
And Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And, and just as an, an aside, you know, we make the worst decisions when we're tired, hungry, and angry, right? So we need to be careful in those times. And uh, this goes a lot deeper than that, but that's some of what was going on with Esau. He was tired. It says, and Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I'm weary. And therefore his name was called Edom, which is a play on the word red there. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Now we're going to focus on Esau. Esau. There's a lot we can say about Jacob. And remembering God's uh, sovereign plan in his providence, uh, Jacob, really the birthright, he was the chosen son, even though he wasn't the firstborn son, they were twins. Uh, so this actually belonged to him, but he sinned in the way that he went about getting it. He schemed instead of trusting the Lord to actually unfold his plan and bring it to him. And so he, he, he he's like sees this as an advantage. He's going to take advantage of Esau. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. He was being really dramatic here. So what is this birthright to me? Now, he really wasn't about to die. He was just hungry. Now, he was a man, and I know as men sometimes, when we're hungry, we think we're about to die, but he wasn't really about to die. Uh, he, he was just indulging his flesh. He, he was weak. Remember, he was a godless man. He was a profane uh, man, and he didn't care about the birthright. So he's, uh, Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. He sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, it says, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And the word despised means he looked at it with contempt. He, he viewed it as having no value. And then we won't read it, but if you skip ahead to, to chapter 27, uh, Isaac's about to die, and so he's supposed to pronounce a blessing upon the firstborn. But uh, Jacob and, and their mom, who, you know, Rachel, Jacob was her favorite, uh, Isaac favorite Esau, they conspired together to sneak in, deceive Isaac, uh, so that Jacob would not only get the birthright, he would get the blessing. And Esau, you know, cried. He was so upset over this when this happened, but he had already sold the birthright. Now, before we go back to Hebrews 12, 17, let me give a little background because, you know, we don't think in terms of birthrights and blessings and those kind of things. We do wills, but we normally think of, you know, dividing it all out equally amongst the kids and that kind of thing. That's normally considered the proper way to do things in our society. But in that society, it wasn't the same thing. In Jewish society of that day, the firstborn son was the most privileged. Um, he got an extra share of the inheritance, so to speak. And so, uh, but at the same time, there was also some responsibility that went along with it. 
You see, the birthright was also a very spiritual thing. And, and, and the birthright and the blessing together, you know, Esau would have had material provision. He would have had uh, you know, authority within the family. But within that authority, he was supposed to be the head of the family. He was supposed to look after the rest of the family once uh, their father died, particularly the sisters. He was supposed to make sure they were taken care of. And he was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the family. So basically, Basically, in a nutshell, in a way that hopefully makes it relatable to us, basically what Esau was saying, he was saying, I want the material blessing, but I don't want the spiritual responsibility that comes along with the birthright. Now, I think we can relate to that because, once again, it's easy for us to say, God bless me, God give me what I need, God give me what I want, but don't ask anything of me. And that's what Esau was doing. And, and so that was his first sin is he despised his birthright. He didn't want the responsibility. He, he indulged himself. He indulged his own flesh. He, he's like, this doesn't mean anything. Just feed me some stew. I mean, he, he gave up the, the greatest privilege of his life for a bowl of stew. And we may say that's stupid, but how often in our lives do we make the same kind of decisions? How often do we trade God's best for things that are nothing in comparison? Now, with that background, let's go back to Hebrews 12, 16, and 17. It says, once again, the warning, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. And then notice verse 17, it says, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, let me, let me explain something, and maybe you don't need this explanation, but when, when I first uh, really kind of read or, or at some point in, in, in reading and studying this passage, I, this raised a question for me because I, I read it, and it sounded like, okay, he's saying he sought it diligently with tears, and he sought repentance, but God wouldn't give him repentance, even though he's uh, seeking it diligently with tears. I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't seem fair to me. I mean, if he wanted to repent, wouldn't God grant it to him? But that's not what it's saying. Grammatically, the word it does not refer back to repentance. It refers back to the blessing. And, and so what it's saying is, and, and this is recorded in Genesis 27, he sought the blessing with tears, but he didn't receive the blessing because even though he was crying, he wasn't truly repentant. Listen, tears are not evidence of repentance. Spiritually, parentally, you know, our kids can cry and not be sorry, right? They're just trying to avoid the consequences. They're just trying to avoid a spanking or getting grounded or whatever the consequence may be. And they can cry great big crocodile tears uh, to, to make it look like they're really sorry. But, you know, we can do the same thing a lot of times with God. We, we can cry and we can talk about how sorry we are. But really the issue is not are, are we sorry, but what are we sorry over? Are we sorry because we've offended a holy God? Are we sorry because we've sinned? Or are we sorry because of the consequences that we're experiencing? Are we broken or are we looking for a bailout? 
Esau was looking for a bailout. He wasn't broken over his sin. And so, how though do we know the difference? How can we know if, if we're spiritually like Esau, if we're uh, a false believer, if we're a backslidden Christian, if we're just looking for a bailout instead of choosing uh, brokenness? Well, I want to point out three characteristics of, of this to you from these two verses in, in Hebrews chapter 12 and try to help us apply them to our lives. So uh, the first characteristic would be is when we choose fleshly gratification over spiritual responsibility. That's exactly what Esau did. He chose fleshly gratification over spiritual responsibility. So I want us to, to apply this in a, in a new covenant kind of way. Our spiritual birthright is Jesus Christ. The Bible says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that he has chosen us, he has redeemed us, he has forgiven us, he has made us children of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're partakers of the divine nature. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's made us new. He's transformed us. Uh, we, we have all of these things going for us in Christ as children of the Father. That's who we are. But along with those blessings, there's spiritual responsibility. Because God never blesses us to be a spiritual reservoir. He blesses us to be a spiritual channel. God never blesses us for us. He blesses us for the glory of his name and for the benefit of other people. Psalm 67, one and two puts it this way. It's kind of a prayer. God be merciful to us and bless us. Nothing wrong with asking for blessing and cause his face to shine upon us. But why? That your, name, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. We're blessed to be a blessing to other people. We're, we're blessed to make Jesus known. We're blessed to spread the gospel. We're blessed to serve God. Uh, we're, we're blessed to love God. We're blessed to help other people and, and so on and so forth. With every blessing, there's corresponding spiritual responsibility. Esau wanted the blessing, but he didn't want the responsibility. A lot of times we're the same way. We're like, God bless me, but God let me do my own thing. Are we broken? Are we looking for a bailout? Uh, there, there's a famous writer who was a British journalist. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge. And he was an agnostic uh, for most of his life, lived a pretty wild life. But toward the end of his life, uh, he became a Christian and he used his writing gifts then for the Lord, written some great things, uh, a lot of apologetics kind of stuff. And, and he wrote about an incident that happened early in his life. And, and then after he became a Christian, he interpreted, I guess, you know, from a biblical lens. But he talked about uh, after he graduated from Cambridge, he moved to India to teach English. And he says, one day he was strolling by a river in the early evening and he spotted the silhouette of a woman bathing on the other side of the river. 
And he later wrote about this, that his heart began to race with what he called, quote, the wild unreasonableness, which is called passion. Overcome by lust, he plunged into the water and started crossing the river. As he approached the woman he got, and he got close enough to see her, he realized that uh, once he could actually see her and not just the silhouette, that she was, in his words, a toothless, wrinkled, and deformed leper. And he said he quickly threw himself back into the river and started swimming in the other direction. And then writing about this later, he said that the real shock that morning was not the leper, but rather it was the condition of his own heart, dark and with appetites overpowering his weak will. The point is this, when we live like Esau to gratify our own flesh, it's always gonna leave us dark and empty and ultimately repelled. It's only when we live for Christ and when we embrace the spiritual responsibility that goes with blessings and when we decide to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus daily, when we abide in him, when we serve him, when we live for him and for his glory and not for ourselves, it's then and only then that we experience the true blessing of knowing God and of God's will being done in our lives and the fulfillment and the peace and the joy that comes from a relationship with Christ. Christ. We can't just choose blessing without accepting the responsibility that goes with it. Think about it this way. Uh, there's a man by the name of Sam Alberry that's written an article on the Gospel Coalition. And Sam Alberry is an Anglican minister from Great Britain who shares a, a struggle with same-sex attraction. And this is what the article's about. Now, he's living celibate. He's not acting on it. But he's, he's just saying he's tempted in this way. And I think one of the things we all need to remember is something Billy Graham said a long time ago is that it's, there's no virtue in resisting a temptation that's not a temptation to you. Just because somebody else is tempted differently than us doesn't make us uh, better or worse than them. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is temptation. It's what we do with it. And so uh, he, he writes this. He says, homosexuality is an issue I've grappled with my entire Christian life. There have been all sorts of ups and downs. But this battle is not devoid of blessings as Paul discovered with his own unyielding thorn in the flesh. Struggling with sexuality has been an opportunity to experience more of God's grace rather than less. But over the last couple of years, I've felt increasingly concerned that when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many of us Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We are not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. We are not always sure we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. It is simply not possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible. God's word is in fact clear. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of marriage. As someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing, times when I have been, quote, in love. But I have learned that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. For me, these include a wonderful depth of friendship 
God has given me with many brothers and sisters the opportunities of singleness, the privileges of a wide-ranging ministry, and the community of a wonderful church family. But greater than any of these is the opportunity to learn the all-sufficiency of Christ. My main point is this. The moment you think following Jesus will be a poor deal for someone, you call Jesus a liar. Discipleship is not always easy. Leaving anything cherished behind is profoundly hard. But Jesus is always worth it. Jesus is always worth it. So, do we just want God to gratify us? Or are we willing to embrace the spiritual responsibility that goes with the blessing of God? But number two, Esau is an example of this. And I think this is something that we all can wrestle with, probably do wrestle with on some level in our lives. And that is, we can want God's blessings without God. We can want God's blessings without actually knowing God. You know, I, I think we see this sometimes you know, in, in the world when you'll hear a celebrity or an athlete that's just won an award or won a game, won a championship or whatever, and somebody's interviewing him or her, and uh, you know, they, they thank God or they thank the man upstairs or something like that. But uh, you know, apart from this moment they won, their lifestyle says nothing or has nothing to do with Jesus. They're obviously living for themselves, living for their own thing. Now, that's easy to judge, but if we're honest, how often do we thank God when things are good and something good happens in our life, but when things are difficult, we kind of forget about God? Or uh, how many people are there in churches who have prayed a prayer and say, I'm going to heaven and I'm not going to go to hell, but worship is means very little to them, if anything. Or they don't ever read the Bible. They don't ever pray. They don't want fellowship with God. They just don't want to go to hell. But it doesn't work that way because you would be miserable in heaven if you don't want God. If we're honest, sometimes do we want God's blessings, but we don't really want to know God. You know, Knowing God and relating to God, listen, I, I, I understand that we don't have any fear of judgment, but knowing God is a kind of a fearsome thing if we're honest about it. I mean, he's our father, but he's a father who likes to meddle in our business. He convicts us of our sin. He changes us. He doesn't let us be comfortable He's calling us higher in him. He's calling us to live differently. He's calling us to be fruitful. He's calling us to live for his glory. We want to be comfortable. God doesn't want us to be comfortable. It's easy to want God to bless us and bail us out and answer our prayers and keep us healthy and keep us safe and give us some good things and make life easy and comfortable and smooth and happy. That's a lot of people's version of God. But that's not a biblical version of God. That's a God we've invented in our own minds. There's nothing comfortable and easy and safe about following Jesus. And part of the point or the purpose of this message, I think, 
is just to challenge us to realize we can't have it both ways. You can go for a spiritual bailout or you can go for brokenness. But understand, God is not going to do things your way. God is not going to bail you out apart from brokenness. You can't live your own way and just expect there to be no consequences for God to just magically fix everything in your life. The Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. God calls us to brokenness over sin and, and, and over suffering. I mean, the Christian life is not just designed to be all laughs and smiles and happy clappy and everything is wonderful. God calls us to brokenness and it's out of brokenness that we truly experience God and we really experience God's blessings. So are we willing to trust him enough to lay down our lives and say, God, you be in control. God, you change me. God, I'm not holding anything back. You take it. My life is on the table for you to use. You tell me that's not a little bit scary? You got more faith than I do if you're telling me that's not a little bit scary. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But do we really want to know God? And do we really believe that when that God knows what's best and when we really lay our, our lives down before him, really give ourselves to him, that that's when we're really going to experience what is best for us? Last. One of the ways that we know that we're looking for a bailout is simply when we're upset over the consequences of our sin without being broken over the sin itself. And this is where I think we're really getting at the heart of repentance. We all want the consequences removed, but, but what's our attitude, what's the posture of our heart towards our sin itself? I want to share an illustration that I read, you know, that the pastor had shared. Um, I don't know very much about the show, so, uh, you know, I don't, don't take it as an endorsement of the show. But he talked about in, the t in an episode of the TV show, drama, The Good Wife. Um, one of the main characters' name is Peter Florick. He was a former state's attorney who went to prison after a scandal and uh, once he served his sentence, you know, came out, he's trying to revive his political career, uh, reconcile, and trying to reconcile with his wife. And so, in a scene from an episode in the first season, Peter and a couple of his assistants make a visit to an African-American pastor named Isaiah. And his assistants had informed this pastor that Peter needed his spiritual guidance. Uh, but the pastor, you know, the way he's portrayed this character is very bold. And so he just looks at him and says, so you want to use me? And uh, Mr. Florick answers honestly and says, yes, it looks good if I'm embraced by you. Our polling numbers are below par with African-American women. So is that the latest scheme, Mr. Florick, brutal honesty? And he replies, I know you think I'm just a shallow narcissistic politician. And you know what? I agree with you. But I've been in prison for the last eight months. I've been away from my family, from my life. I've seen everything I've built turn to dust. 
So this pastor responds sarcastically and says, until one day you found the glorious words of the Gospels. He said, I'm not a photo op. I can't be charmed. I can't be finessed. You have done wrong. Mr. Flork says, I know I have. The pastor says, your marriage is in trouble. I know you think it isn't, but it is because you don't acknowledge true repentance. So Mr. Flork says, tell me what I have to do. Do you love your wife? Yes. Does she love you? I don't know. Are you sleeping in separate rooms? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Mr. Flork kind of paused uncomfortably here and says, I don't know what that means. The pastor asked, do you want to know what it means? He says, no. So the pastor smiles and says, please, God, make me good. Just not yet. You're afraid of change, but your wife won't love you. She won't return to your bed till you change. So do you want to change? And that's really the question that it boils down to when it comes to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Not are we crying tears, not do we want our consequences to be better, not, not do we regret that we did something. Esau regretted his action. The problem was he didn't regret his sin. He was crying over the consequences of his sin. He wasn't crying over his sin. So when we think about repentance, and, and, and sometimes you know, it's almost used like a bad word, repentance is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us because we can't change without, without repentance. We're stuck where we are and the messes uh, that we make. But I think it would be wise for us to think about as we conclude, okay, what does it look like to really repent? Well, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 says, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So sorrow can be a part of repentance, but sorrow and repentance aren't necessarily the same thing. He says, For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's a worldly sorrow that's just looking for a bailout. There's a godly sorrow that's actually broken over sin. What does that look like? What is repentance? Well, repentance is a decision that comes from a change of mind that leads to a corresponding change in behavior. Jesus talked about bearing fruits that are worthy of repentance. Second, and I think this is huge when we think about repentance. Repentance is a willingness to do whatever it takes to change. In Matthew 5, in Matthew 18, Jesus talked about uh, you know, cutting off your hand, plucking out your eyeball if it's causing you to sin. Obviously, he, was, he wasn't speaking literally, but here's what he's saying. He's saying you gotta hate your sin so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to overcome it. That's a sign of genuine repentance. And I think especially when it's a sin that we struggle with for a long time, when it's something of an addictive nature, there is no way to overcome it apart from just the attitude of hating it. And I want to do whatever it takes, whatever I have to do to be rid of this, that's what I'm willing to do. Three, repentance comes from humility. A humble person repents. A 
proud person hardens his or her heart. Four, repentance is grief over sin. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's grieving, mourning, not just over the consequences, but over what we've done. And five, flowing out of that, that mourning is really over the fact that sin and repentance are relational in nature. Because we have sinned against the holy God. We have sinned against our Father. We have broken covenant with him. We've committed spiritual adultery against him. So if we're thinking more about how our sin affects us than, uh, than we are about how sin affects God, we're not at genuine repentance yet. True repentance is a willingness to accept the consequences of our actions. Not to try to just manage our sin, not to try to avoid the consequences, not to avoid discipline or accountability. It's accepting the consequences. True repentance is confession and forsaking our sin. True repentance, when it involves other people, is a willingness to make amends. Not just confessing to God, but apologizing to others. Uh, trying to make it right. Restitution where it's needed. Being concerned, more concerned about our victim than we are about ourselves. Doing what it takes to make it right. Being patient with them. Not expecting them to immediately forgive and, and, and things like that. And true repentance at times is confessing to others, not just God, and receiving ministry and accountability for them. You know, in James chapter 5, it talks about confessing our sins one to another, praying for one another that we may be healed. So we confess to God for forgiveness. Sometimes we confess to others for healing. Are we broken over our sin? We're we just looking for a bailout. Let me close with this. Uh, pastor, I know he pastored in Pittsburgh for a while. Uh, pastor by the name of William Williman. He's written some books. Um, like I said, he pastored in the city, but he talked about, you know, he didn't explain, the, at least in what I read, the reason why, but he went to a funeral out in, in, in the country. And um, if you've been in East Tennessee very long, you've probably been to a funeral that was resemble this, probably actually even be worse than, than what he uh, says here. But uh, he, he says this, he describes it this way. He says, the preacher pounded on the pulpit and looked over the casket. He would say, it's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that, but he's dead now. It's too late for him, but it's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You can still decide. You're still alive. It's not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. And then at some point in the message, he told a story about how a Greyhound bus had run into a funeral procession once on the way to the cemetery, and that could happen today. He said, you should decide today. Today is the day to get your life together. Too late for old Joe, but it's not too late for you. You ever heard this funeral sermon before? Um, and, but he said, his response, I was so angry at that preacher. On the way home, I told my wife, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and as insensitive to that poor family? I found it disgusting. She said, I've never heard anything like that. It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. 
And worst of all, it was true. It is true. May not have been the best way to say it in that moment, but it is true that all of us have a moment right now, have a time, have a day of decision where we have to choose before God as we've heard his word, how we're gonna respond. Are we just looking for a bailout? Are we just looking to escape the consequences of our sin? Or do we really want God? Are we willing to lay down our flesh, repent of our sin, embrace God, embrace spiritual responsibility, be broken over our sin so that we can know and experience God and we can know and experience the life that he has for us? Are we going to try to use God to indulge us? That's what Esau did. And God's word calls him a profane, a godless man. An example of a false believer. Are you in Christ? Not if you prayed a prayer, not if you joined a church, but have you repented of your sin? and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? Are you broken over your sin? Do you hate what you've done? Do you despise that you fall short of the glory of God? Do you know uh, that there's nothing you can do to save yourself? Do you see how bad sin is? I mean, sin is so bad that hell is the ultimate consequence, but even beyond that, sin is so bad that it took Jesus dying for us to have any possibility of being forgiven of our sins. That's how God wants us to look at our sin, but it's so easy to minimize it. It's so easy to focus on the consequences. Have we come to that place where we're guilty and we stand condemned before a holy God and we know that we have no righteousness and we know that our only hope is Jesus Christ, God made flesh, bearing the wrath of God, dying in our place, rising from the dead. And if we come to the end of ourselves and the end of our self-righteousness and surrender to him in faith, in genuine repentance, brokenness over our sin, receiving the forgiveness, the payment for our sins that he offers on the cross. If not, he invites you to come to him in that way today because that is really, truly the only way we can come to him. If you say, I know Christ, are you walking in repentance? The Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. We all have things we need to repent of every day. Is there sin in our life? Are there things that we're keeping away from God, that we're trying to hold on to, that we're trying to manage? Are there ways that we're just trying to avoid the consequences of our sin? Are there things that we're hiding that we just need to give to the Lord? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, whether you're here in the room or online? It's my hope and my prayer that we won't hear this lightly. It is heavy, but it's biblical. I mean, it, it may be a little like that preacher in that funeral sermon. It may not be real comfortable for you, but the issue is, is it true? Listen, if you don't know Christ, it's not a prayer that saves you. 
It is, once again, coming to the end of yourself, repenting and trusting him alone. And if God is working in your heart by his spirit to grant you repentance and faith, I just ask you just to call on his name, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask him to come into your life and to take control of you, to surrender to him, to tell him that you believe in him and you know that it's only through the cross that you can be forgiven. You know that you have nothing to offer him and to ask him to give you a relationship with himself, to ask him to give you new life. If you're a Christian, there's something you need to confess, to ask his forgiveness for. Something you need to make right with somebody else something you need to talk to somebody about because you've been trying to handle it on your own and you know that you can't. And if you're really going to repent, you've got to be willing to do whatever it takes. God, I pray for your grace right now.